0: This morning we come to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. May I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to this passage of Scripture. We have almost made our way, going verse by verse through this historical narrative of the early church. And probably one more Sunday we will find ourselves coming to the end of it. Before I read the text to you this morning and comment on it, I must confess that I absolutely marvel at the way God spreads the gospel across the globe to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's a staggering thought to think how God is building his church as he has promised and to know that there is absolutely nothing that can thwart that expansion, even though Satan and his minions do all kinds of things to do so in ways that we could never imagine. He delivers the glorious gospel to those whom he has chosen in eternity past to be recipients of his grace, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they are or where they live. I think of the words Jesus said in John 6:37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And indeed, all of them are as he has promised. And it's like a, a, a mighty wind. This unstoppable force of the gospel of Christ is being sent forth across the globe constantly by an omnipotent God. The Holy Spirit always finds his mark and accomplishes his saving purposes. Remember what Jesus said in John 3, 8, that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Well, dear friends, in the first century, this Saving Wind blew upon a small island in the middle of the Mediterranean, an island called Malta. And in that language, it meant a place of refuge. How fitting. There, a number of God's elect existed, pagan idolaters, spiritual cadavers dead in their sins, completely unaware of the depths of their depravity and the hopeless condition of their souls. They knew nothing about a savior named Jesus Christ, one whom God made to be sin on their behalf, that they might become the righteousness of God in him. And of course, such could be said of all of us, right? We never knew that God was moving upon us with his saving grace in those days prior to our salvation. Well, these people had no idea that they were objects of God's sovereign love. No idea whatsoever. They had no idea that God was about to rescue them from his wrath. Now, I want you to keep this in mind, dear friends. They had absolutely no idea that divine help was on its way, and they didn't even have any idea that they were lost. I can vaguely remember those days when I was a young boy. Maybe you can remember those days as well. Moreover, they were utterly clueless that God was about to use them to rescue 276 souls from the terrors of a violent and very cold sea. And that three of the men that they would help rescue would be choice servants of the living God. And one of them would be his apostle, empowered in ways that they could not imagine. Yet in the providence of God, all of these things had been set into motion and were about to unfold. Now, to get a running start into where we're at in Acts 28, I want to begin in verse 39 of chapter 27 so look at verse 39 of chapter 27 even though we're going to f- focus on the first 16 vo- verses of chapter 28 acts twenty-seven thirty-nine. and when day came they could not recognize the land but they did observe a certain bay with a beach and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. And when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it came about that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this, it happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. And they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. And at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we sailed around and arrived at Regium and a day later a south wind sprang up and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. As I lived with this text and meditated upon it, I was struck again with the workings of God to see all that he had done and all that all of the implications of what he had done in that place implications that are far reaching even into our modern era as the gospel was planted on those islands and in those places and now as we can see planted even in rome in fact it was already in rome and as i think about this text i believe there are three categories that will help us grasp some of the truths that God would intend for us to see. We're going to see the provision I'm sorry, the providence, the provision and the power of God. The providence, the provision and the power of God. And as we ponder the marvels of this story and all that it says about God, we will certainly see the undeniable parallels in our own life. To be sure, every category that we look at here of divine mercy, has been and continues to be at work in the life of all who have been called according to His grace in Christ Jesus. First, let's look at the providence of God in verse 1. Notice it says, When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. Now, you will remember that God had already promised Paul that no lives would be lost, that the ship would run aground and a God who cannot lie would have to therefore be a God who was sovereign, who could guarantee that his promises would come to pass. And so here, dear friends, we witness once again the miracle of divine providence where God has orchestrated a myriad of things, things too far beyond our ability to even fathom to somehow come together. The, the, the wind and the waves and, and the ship, there had to be the proper bay and the proper place for the ship to, to be fastened into the land. There had to be protection for every person to prevent them from being dashed to pieces by the waves that would drive people into the ground. Those same waves that were breaking up the back of the ship as people plunged into the water. There had to be. Uh, strength given to the swimmers there had to be suitable debris for those who could not swim Uh, there had to be the perfect light and timing for for these islanders to be able to see all that was going on and come to their aid there had to even be sufficient dry wood for them to build I'm sure several large bonfires in order to accommodate two hundred and seventy-six Shivering, soaked, exhausted, sickly survivors that had been tossed at sea now for several weeks like a bottle in the midst of a hurricane. So this was a matter of life and death. And God has now in his providence orchestrated all of these things for these people to survive. I've experienced life threatening hypothermia at least three times in my life. And I Learned from the Indians that we lived with in British Columbia that one of the best ways to help with that is to, first of all, get all of your clothes off. But make sure you have a fire, but not just one fire. Typically, they would build a circle of fires to help you with this. And no doubt they did this type of thing there. These people had to get the clothes off quickly. No doubt there were um, uh, robes and maybe blankets being brought to them. Evidently, there was no large shelter for them, so there were fires that were built. And we know that Malta, by the way, was was, uh, was just an immense rock, basically, out in the middle of the sea. It's about 60 miles off the coast of Sicily. It was about 17 miles long and 10 miles wide and roughly 60 miles in circumference. And we can see that the experienced sailors on the vessel did not recognize what came to be called St. Paul's Bay, where they were shipwrecked. Normally, they would have entered into a more accommodating main harbor, a port called Valletta, which was about 10 miles away. But my point here is God obviously knew all of this. He orchestrated all of these things. He had just the right people, just the right resources available to assist these, these weary mariners for such a perfect rescue. And beloved, God's providence should always be a source of comfort to each of us, knowing that at all times he's working in our lives to accomplish his purposes. And sometimes even when we experience things in life where it's as though we are hopelessly adrift in some great storm in the sea, We can rest assured that God is in control. He's directing us toward the perfect harbor where he will use us, perhaps where he will test us, certainly where he will care for us. And to be sure, God is always orchestrating everything in our life to accomplish his purposes in us and through us. Remember, Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You hear a lot today about a purpose-driven life. Beloved, it is God's purpose, not our purpose, that is important. And His purpose is the only purpose that matters. It's all about God, not about us. And God's purpose is to conform us into the Lord Jesus Christ, to use us for the will of the Father and to make disciples of all men. The Christian life is never boring, is it? As I thought about this text, I thought, my, Paul, talk about a guy that had some stories to tell. And to think, he never whines, he never complains, he, he just keeps on serving. So I thought about it, there's, there's never a dull moment in the gospel enterprise, Right. When you're serving the Lord, you, you, you'll just never be bored. By the way, the converse is true. If you're bored, you're not serving the Lord. It's as simple as that. It's an incredible truth, isn't it, that God is always at work in us. He's always up to something. Remember, Paul wrote in Philippians two thirteen: you are at work in me both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And it's amazing to think how that God is always opening and he's always closing doors I think of what the psalmist said. Remember in Psalm 139, verse 5, he says, You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. In other words, what he was saying there, David is saying, God, you use the circumstances of life to both limit me and, and, and to direct me where I should go. Well, Paul understood this. And he also knew, therefore, that every day was an adventure. We know according to Proverbs 20, Verse 24, man's steps are, are ordained by the Lord, the text says. Paul understood this, whether he was in prison in Caesarea or whether he was being tossed to and fro in the sea in a ship. He knew that God was in control and that he was up to something in his life. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. Psalms thirty seven twenty three says, and he, God, delights in his way. Again, as I think about the providence of God in Paul's life and I think about this story, I I found myself kind of smiling. Can you ever imagine Paul being bored? Think how ridiculous it would be to say to Paul, Paul, do do you ever just kind of get bored with this whole Christian thing? Do, Do you ever find yourself losing your joy and and getting depressed and and beginning to complain and whine and give up? Obviously, the answer would be no. Beloved, if that is you, there is something wrong with your love for Christ and your service. Because indeed, if you're following the Lord, if you're serving him, there's never a dull moment. It's always an adventure. You're probably self-focused, self-absorbed, self-centered. You know, if all I knew I had to do is sit around and watch those ridiculous shows on television and watch the endless football games, and I love to watch them. Don't get me wrong, but it, it, I mean, talk about a boring life. I mean, if I can put it this way, folks, I want to ride on a ship in a violent storm. Don't you? I, I really. I, I I want. I want a shipwreck. I, I want to. I want to see people that I've never seen before coming up to a shore and building a bonfire and seeing how God provides. I want to be bit by a poisonous viper as long as I can be healed, right I, I I want these exciting things in my life, and all of these things come when when we serve the Lord. I want to stand before Caesar. I don't care about all of the other stuff. I want to watch the living God use me. To present the gospel so I can watch his transforming power take people and deliver them from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's where excitement of life is. That's where fulfillment is. We are entertaining ourselves to death here in this country. You know, Paul understood this. In fact, this was at the very heart of his words in Philippians 4, verse 6. Remember there he said, be anxious for nothing. And he says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Literally what he's saying there is When your understanding reaches its limit, when life causes you to shake your head in utter dismay regarding the difficulties that God has placed you in, suddenly at the end of your understanding, we see that the peace of God, one, frankly, that is derived from the knowledge of God's sovereign rule over your life, that peace now is going to guard your heart's and your minds in Christ Jesus in other words an objective conviction is going to produce a subjective supernatural tranquility and that conviction is god i know that you are sovereign over all things I know that your divine providence is orchestrating every area of my life. I know that your purpose is to conform me into the image of Christ and that you have called me to make disciples of all men and to do what Christ did. And that is the will of the father. Nothing else matters in my life. This is what I'm all about. Therefore, my life is filled with joy. It's filled with adventure. And I'm not going to be anxious for anything, even though there's times. Where my understanding is going to run out and thank you that at that point you're going to kick in with these great truths that only the spirit of God can produce in a, in the heart of a believer. He says you're going to guard my heart and my mind. In other words, God's peace is going to protect us from anxiety, from doubt, from depression, from fear and distress But again, you will never experience anything. You will never experience this kind of peace unless, dear friends, you have a confidence in the sovereignty of God. If you don't understand that, then the peace that you conjure up will be your own peace and it will fail. Well, so in light of all of this. I believe, and I know the scripture doesn't say this, but I believe Paul has a big smile on his face as he's fighting the cold water, making it to shore. You know, he, he, he's shivering, he, he's cold, and I, he's assisting others. Can't you see him? Um, and and, and these, these pagans are coming up to him, trying to help him and others. And I believe what Paul was saying is, Lord, I don't know what you're up to, but you're up to Something. And this this is great. This is so exciting. God, this is another opportunity for you to prove yourself powerful on my my behalf. This is another opportunity for me to present the gospel and watch you change lives. God, thank you for this purpose in my life. You see, what drove Paul was the gospel, not personal fulfillment. All was driven by the glory of God, not the exaltation of self, not even pleasure, the pleasure of self. He had one purpose in life, and that is to preach Christ and him crucified. Nothing else mattered. In fact, it's interesting, and we'll see more of this when we come to the end of of Luke's account here in, in the Acts of the Apostle. But it's interesting that Luke's account is all about the advancement of the gospel. I really want you to understand this. It's about the advance of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. It is not a story about Paul and about Peter and and other people. In fact, for this reason, the book is going to seem to end rather abruptly. And I've heard people complain. It's like, well, what what happened to Paul? Where's the rest of the story here? And you must understand that the book is not about Paul. It's about the spread of the gospel. And as Jesus promised, that gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. I want to camp on this for just a few minutes. Beloved, this is so important for you to understand because we live in a day of such profound apostasy Where many people see Christianity as a religion that is all about man and his needs versus God and his glory. You see, Paul has absolutely no care about his own personal needs. No care whatsoever. His success, his pleasure, his prosperity, his popularity. He trusts God to take care of all of those things. All that mattered to him was to be like Christ. And what did Christ do? He came to do the will of the father. That's what drove him. And it's so sad today. Please hear this again. We live in a kind of pseudo-Christian, some would even say a post-Christian era, a culture that is steeped in ignoble ignoble, um, concepts about, about God. Beliefs that people have, even in churches, that utterly eviscerate the very core of the attributes of God. People today have no understanding of his unapproachable holiness. They have no understanding of his unrestricted sovereignty. They have absolutely no comprehension of his unfathomable glory and majesty. And you see this all the time in the lives of so many believers. Instead, God has been reduced to be basically nothing more than a coach to help make us successful, rather than a God to make us holy. He has been reduced to a blesser that's going to give us all kinds of goodies like some cosmic Santa Claus rather than a savior who came to die for our sins. The gospel that is preached is wide to be inclusive of anybody that can fog a mirror, regardless of what they believe, versus a narrow gate that a person must squeeze through and groan in repentance and a begging and a pleading for mercy the way that is taught today is a broad way, not a narrow way. And quite frankly, churches today, for the most part, are man-centered, not God-centered. Some have asked me, why don't we partner more with other churches in the area to do various things together? And my answer is quite simple. Most of the churches, certainly not all, but most of them, frankly, worship a different God and they preach a different gospel. Counterfeit religious systems. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? He went on to say, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. You see, there are so many people today that see God in such a different way. They see Him, for example, as somebody that, that, that is kind of dancing into the service kind of jiving along, playing an air guitar. That's how they see God. They don't see the Lord Jesus as high and lofty and transcendent and lifted up and holy. One that cannot even look upon sin. They don't see the God of Isaiah 6, where when God allowed Isaiah to be brought into his glory... Isaiah was overwhelmed and he said, woe is me. I I, I am being undone. That's not the God of our culture. We've got a newly invented Jesus, kind of a smiley face Jesus that is there to be manipulated to give us all of the goodies that we think that we need. And of course, today, the most popular counterfeit system preaches a gospel of self-fulfillment, not one of self-denial. And it, it, it's almost as if people are saying, Jesus came and He died to meet your felt needs rather than forgive you from your sins. Theirs is a call to success, not sacrifice. Many times there is a call to somehow become a Christian so you can gain your life rather than so you can lose it for Christ's sake. Beloved, the truth is God is far more concerned about your holiness than he is your happiness. Your faithfulness and service is far more a priority than your personal pleasures, than than your success. That's not what Christianity is about. Paul is going to go on. He's going to go to Rome. He's going to present the truth, and then he is going to be tortured, and he's going to be beheaded. In fact, your greatest purpose in life is to deny yourself and follow Christ. That doesn't sell very well, does it? You see, this perversion can be seen easily in many gospel invitations. See, there's an underlying presupposition that many people have. It kind of goes like this. God is lonely and he is desperately in need of um, of relationship with you. He, he really wants you on his team. That's kind of the idea. And moreover, um, God is trying very hard to save you, but he is limited by your unbelief. And so won't you help him with this embarrassing situation by asking Jesus into your heart? And then when you do that, he's going to reward you with a life of prosperity and a life of of self-gratifying purpose and, and, and success. And he's even going to ultimately give you heaven. You see how subtle that is, how appealing it is to the flesh, but how distorted it is? The truth is, dear friends, please hear this Jesus came to save us, not to help us. We are not even necessary to God, He is utterly self existent, self sufficient. Remember what Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17? He said, God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Beloved, understand that God is neither greater because of us, nor is He somehow diminished without us. God is altogether glorious with or without us. You must understand that. You must understand that we exist solely because He determined it so, not because He needed us. And the reality is, God has chosen those whom He would save in eternity past. And He is not even remotely frustrated that some of His elect elect might not believe. Because whatever He has decreed will come to pass. All whom the Father has given me, all whom the Father has given me, will come to me. So the Christian life is all about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. Jesus said, if you want to gain your life, what what must you be willing to do? be willing to lose it. Paul understood this. For this reason, he could smile when he was washed up on shore. And beloved, though he loves us with an everlasting love, he did not create us to keep him company. He did not create us because there was some deficiency in Him. He created us to give Him glory. And He finds great joy when we do. And we find great joy when we do. However, there's no deficiency in Him. Again, if you really want to find purpose in life, I think about this purpose-driven life stuff that's out there. Here's how you find purpose in life. Fully embrace the truth that Christianity has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your needs, your pleasure, your success. But it has everything to do with God and His glory. That's where you'll find joy. That's where you'll find purpose. And your purpose is to do the will of the Father, to make disciples of all men, to give God glory, to be obedient, to become conformed to the image of Christ. So Paul fights the cold waves, knowing that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yet he fights those waves and he gets washed on shore. And I believe in his mind he would be saying something like this. God, I have no idea what you're up to in my life. I have no idea what the secret counsels of your will has to say about what is about to happen. But I know this. You are up to something in my life. And I know, as he wrote in Philippians 2.13, that you are at work in me, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Therefore, I will do all things without what? Grumbling or disputing. Isn't that great? Lord, I'll gladly give you my life. So we witness the providence of God in this narrative and we see God orchestrating all of these events in Paul's life and also, by the way, in the life of, of Luke and Aristarchus that was with him. All of this to use them to glorify himself as they, they, they selflessly and sacrificially gave themselves to the gospel enterprise. And secondly, we see the provision of God. Not only here on Malta, but also as Paul continues his journey towards Rome. Notice verse 2. The narrative showed us extraordinary kindness, it says. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. So again, on this place of refuge, the name that, of Malta, we see that they need immediate attention. Again, I know from personal experience and some of you have experienced this as well. If you're if you're getting into a stage of hypothermia, you begin to feel like you're going to fall asleep. You're you're shivering. You're almost unable to speak. And you have got to get those wet clothes off. You have got to get some circulation and get some warmth. God knew this. These people were on the verge of death, on the verge of exhaustion. They're they're shivering violently now. And perhaps there's some rock of windbreak, we don't know. But we see that these natives, as the text says, comes to help them. Uh, Barbaroi, in the original language, we get uh, 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 barbaric, barbarism, those types of things from the term. But all it simply means is that they were unable to, to speak the normal language of that day. These would have been... People that spoke the language of North Africa, they were Phoenicians in descent. And so the text here, by using the word natives here in verse two, suggests that, that they were not Greeks. They, they did not speak Greek, nor would they speak Latin. But I want you to notice the hospitality they showed to these weary mariners. Isn't it interesting? And again, little did they know that they were rescuing the Lord's anointed servants who were would be used to rescue them from an infinitely greater peril. I was reminded here of Hebrews thirteen two. There the text reads, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And of course, that text was a a reference to uh, abraham and and sarah and and lot and and Gideon and Manoah. and the point here is not so much you know even the, even as those people unwittingly um, showed hospitalities to angels and even the pre incarnate Christ. The point here is not so much that hospitality should be given to people so that you might see an angel that that that's not the point, but rather for you to realize the profound implications of hospitality, recognizing the far-reaching effect of your kindness. In fact, in Romans 12, verses 9 through 13, we read that practicing hospitality is considered a mark of love without hypocrisy. Are you a hospitable person? And in 1 Timothy 3, 2 we see it's a qualification for an elder. And what happens when we give? God blesses us. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6 38, give and it will be given to you. They will pour out into your poor they will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And certainly these people unwittingly, with their hospitality, were blessed and magnificent ways with the truth of the gospel again as i've traveled around various parts of of the world i am always amazed at the hospitality of other saints you, you always feel like you're just even even if you can't speak their language you feel like they're right at home and many times god even raises up people that don't know christ and they're just as friendly as can be to you it's amazing to see how god provides for his own Let me show you some other examples of the Lord's provision here in this uh, this text. It's one that's uh, extended beyond the initial landing. Notice in verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. There's more provision, right? Verse 10, we see some more. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. And then later on in their journey to Rome, they came to Puteoli in verse 14. We see there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Isn't God good? And thus we came to Rome and the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Friends, this is literally saying that some of these people walked over 40 miles to meet them as they made their way to Rome. I, I just uh, I just marvel at, at the Lord's compassion. He, he, he is such an attentive God. He, he knows precisely what we need and when we need it. And these dear servants now thank God and they take courage. And again, what a comfort this should be to each of us. As we live out our lives knowing that God's going to meet our needs. And I know this is especially important for many of us during this time of economic hardship. And we have every reason to believe it's going to get worse. Isn't it great to know that God's going to meet all of our needs? Paul wrote in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And in Matthew 6, verse 31, the Lord said, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, in other words, the unbelievers, they eagerly seek all these things. He said, But your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So he says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So we see the providence of God. We see the provision of God. Thirdly, the power of God. And there's really three manifestations of this that we see here in this text. First, we see his power in rescuing the 276 survivors here, bringing them to shore safely. I've already discussed that. Secondly, we see how he protects Paul from this serpent. Notice beginning in verse three, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But They were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a God. Notice the text tells us that from their perspective at the end of verse four, quote, justice, justice has not allowed him to live. Justice, the term decay in the original language uh, is probably a reference to their goddess. They had a goddess of justice and these pagans assumed that That Paul, like all men, was subject to their gods and that uh, because of the snake bite, justice, their God justice would now be satisfied. And obviously this this is ridiculous, but no doubt Paul used this particular scenario as a segue into his gospel presentation to explain to them, even though the text doesn't say this, and this is purely conjecture, but I'm quite confident that something like this happened. Don't you know that he explained that true justice is found in in the one triune God of the universe? We have all violated his law, and the only way that divine justice can be satisfied is for a perfect sacrifice, frankly, a substitutionary sacrifice to take place. Let me introduce you to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, isn't it interesting that they're gathering wood here? Paul is gathering wood, and we know that um, others had gathered wood. It's no doubt piled by the fire. That's what you do. Fires need constant attention. There's 276 people that are shivering in the wind and the cold. So I would imagine there were several large fires going on. And as they bring these sticks from various places... Obviously, there's a poisonous reptile that is immobile, nestled in the wood. And he's brought over here, warmed by the flames. And what happens when you get a reptile by something warm? Well, they come to life and they will do so very quickly. And so we see that Paul now comes to add some wood on the fire and this serpent attaches itself somehow the, the the Greek indicates that, the, that there's almost a wrapping around of the serpent as it bites him on the hand. There are some snakes that bite that way, like our coral snake. But we see that the viper's venom was no match for the God who created it, and God uses this scenario to advance the gospel. And obviously, Paul knew that, and I think that's what helps us understand his nonchalant attitude. He Just kind of flicks it into the fire. I find it interesting. I'm intrigued with this. First of all, I'm intrigued with Paul's demeanor. It's one of joy, one of of humility, one of service. I mean, this guy is the energizer bunny when it comes to service. I mean, he, he just never gives up. Here he is caring for other people, going and getting firewood and putting it on the fire. Don't you know a lot of the rest of them were sitting there shivering, trying to come back to life? He's ever encouraging, leading by example. Like the Lord, he imitates who came to serve, not to be served. Now, I want to contrast this for a moment to sometimes the sour, sullen saint that's always complaining, that has kind of that that welfare mentality that somebody needs to care for me, which is a supreme mark of pride and arrogance. You know the type. You've been around them before. I have, too. They have that dour, sour, lugubrious look on their face. They, they, they look kind of like Eeyore having a gallbladder attack. You, you've seen those kind of people. They're so hard to be around. There's no warmth. There, there, there's no encouragement. There's no sympathy, no joy, no, 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 not even a smile. And typically, these people are bitter and complaining and whining. And I pity those of you who have to live with such a melancholy creature. Well, obviously, this wasn't Paul. He's just survived this horrible ordeal. and What's he doing? He's helping stoke the fire. He's cold. He's weak. He's fatigued. And yet he's serving others. And I want you to notice here with the snake bite. I've been around snakes. I know most of you have. In fact, I've been bitten, I think, four times. Fortunately, it was always on the boot, So I've never really had one except maybe a chicken snake kind of grab onto you. But that doesn't really hurt that bad. But I find it here. There's no screaming, no hysterics, no going into some fit of emotion, no picking the snake and flipping it off where it could hurt somebody else. I, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? He he just kind of oh, snake and he just kind of flicks it into the flicks it into the fire. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you you, you simply have to to smile when you think about this and. I, I love to be around folks like this, and frankly, I abhor folks that are ruled by their emotion and they're, they're, they're prone to, to, to fits of, of rage and depression and panic and all of this type of thing. You know, I, I, I'm sure that there are some people, they, they, they even see a snake and they, they go into hysterics and as if the devil himself has, has suddenly grabbed them and, and God has suddenly been dethroned and the whole world is without resource and they panic and scream and Might I add humbly that that is always a mark of weak faith. I mean, certainly we should have a healthy fear of those types of creatures, but to go into some fit of panic is something different. But Paul is calm. He's collected. And again, he knows God's in control. Oh, the snake, you know. (laughs) You know, I'll flick this off and get rid of it. Can I pause here for just a second? Folks, if you live with the Eeyore type that's always sour, always complaining, those people controlled by their emotions, can I give you a few things that I could encourage you to do? First of all, find a Paul or maybe a Paulette and spend time around that person because those are the type of people that are going to help stoke the fire. You know, they're going to be encouraging to you. As you shiver from the dampness and the coldness of maybe a cold, maybe even an unbelieving spouse. You know, if you spend enough time in a cold, dark dungeon, you will grow cold and dark yourself. So find a Paul. Spend time around that person. Secondly, be a Paul to others. If you're cold physically, what do you do? You get moving. You get, you you know, you you exercise. You run in place. You do something. The idea here is get moving. Exercise your faith. Start serving other people. Get your mind off of your own coldness and be a blessing to others. Go out and stoke their fire. Remember, big fires begin with tiny sparks, right? They begin with tiny sparks. They begin with little, small flames and little pieces of kindling. So don't don't look for some grandiose way of serving. Just find little ways and serve. God will warm your soul. Thirdly, spend much time warming yourself around the fires of fellowship. You know, this is largely what Wednesday nights are about here at Calvary Bible Church. You know, you think about this. Ask yourself, who at your workplace really encourages you in the things of the Lord? Who warms your soul with the glorious truths of redemption and the gospel of Christ? Who do you know that you, you spend time around during the week who who radiates the warmth of Christian love and speaks with earnest zeal about the Savior? My, my point is, you, you just hardly ever have that. And, and you can grow cold very quickly because we live in a cold, fallen, dark and dreary world. So come in Wednesday nights you warm yourself during the middle of the week with the fires of fellowship. And fourthly, take in the fire of the word and pray. And do that regularly. Isn't it interesting? The, uh, the Lord said, is not my word like a fire? Remember in Jeremiah chapter 23? You know, I find myself for every hour that I spend watching the news. And I won't watch hardly anything other than Fox because that's the closest I can get to something that is even remotely accurate. But for every hour I spend watching the news, I need about 10 hours in the Word to somehow get warmed back up to life. It is so depressing. And I simply refuse to spend very much time around whiners and sour that are not happy unless they're making everybody else miserable. It's a drain on everyone's battery. I want to spend time around Paul, don't you? So that's what we see here as God provides for him. And as we see his power, finally we see God's power to save others from not only physical but spiritual peril. Notice in verse 8, And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him. And after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. This recurrent fever was believed to be something that continues to be a problem in various parts of the world. Probably a microbe that is found in goat's milk that they drink. It's common in that region and it produces kind of a gastric fever that is absolutely miserable. You combine this with dysentery that is a common problem in regions where sanitation is poor. That would make any man frankly want to die. But obviously God was at work and God used Paul to miraculously heal him and thus validate both the message as well as the messenger of the gospel. And isn't it interesting? Paul didn't presume upon God. He prayed to learn whether or not it was God's will to heal this, this man. And obviously as it was and God used Paul as an instrument of healing with him and with others. And then during Paul's three-month stay on Malta, we see here that a church is basically planted, implied by the respect and the provisions they gave them in verse 10. And according to, to, to tradition, Publius, who would have been the, the as his name indicates here, the, the, the Roman governor of, of Malta, who so graciously welcomed them, became the first pastor of that church there on Malta. So God's work is now being accomplished on this island and he he even now then he provides another Alexandrian ship to take Paul as, and his companions uh, on to Rome. It says that twin brothers was on its figurehead. That, by the way, would have been Castor and Pollux, sons of Zeus, according to Greek mythology. It was common uh, for the people of that day to put their gods on the front of of their ship. And they believed that these gods, by the way, would would protect the sailors from the sea. And then finally, Luke goes on to record their travel in verses 12 through 15 as they make their way. And once again, all the way through, we see how Paul's journeys manifest the providence of God. They manifest the provision of God and the power of God to accomplish all that he has decreed in building His church. And friends, may I encourage you once again to find great comfort in these truths because we serve the same God. Amen? We serve the same God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for these truths and the implications of them in the gospel ministry and certainly in our lives as we endeavor to serve You We pray that You will cause us to meditate upon these things, to hide them in our heart, and to always have them ready to bring encouragement when our understanding runs out. And Lord, finally again, I would pray for those who do not know You as Savior. Lord, how I pray that by Your grace and through Your gospel, You will penetrate their recalcitrant heart And cause them to see the reality of their own sinfulness and the glories of the Savior. May even today be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olive-tree-resources.org.